I applied for a job a couple of years ago and I got to the final round of recruitment and it was this couple of days of selection. It was pretty ruthless. It was for a large company in Oxford. We spent time doing all kinds of activities, you know, the usual touring around the business, meeting people. But what I found quite interesting was we spent a large proportion of the time kind of semi-socially. We were put up in the Oxford Belfry Hotel. We were buttered up. We were given big rooms and mini fridges were filled. But what I couldn't quite get my head around was what they were looking for. They asked me to comment on other candidates for selection. Were they hoping for me to be ruthless, perceptive, honest, or what? They put us in competitive games against one another. Were they looking for me to be an out-and-out competitor or a team player? We were taken for an expensive meal to rub shoulders with executives. We were taken back to the hotel where current employees bought us rounds and rounds of drinks. And there was this interesting vibe of kind of semi-social and yet competitive discussion. The whole time I was thinking, how do I succeed? How do I navigate this situation? Do I just play the game? If this is the way it works, if this is how I get the job, it's not fair. But that's the way of the world. And I remember lying in my bed that night in this huge double room in a hotel luxury that that night I couldn't really enjoy. And I thought to myself, what does God actually want me to do here? Maybe you'll know that tension getting in with a certain social group and the tension that comes with it, getting promotions at work and the the tensions that come with that. Maybe it's getting into a sports team or even in family life. Maybe it feels like God's not there. Maybe you wonder what he's doing. It's not obvious what God wants me to do. Why doesn't he just give me a clear sign? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he speak directly? Well, we've seen, haven't we? Yes, there's a book where God's not even mentioned. It's a book where we could get so entangled with the gritty story. We could ask, where is God? What's he even doing? But it's a brilliant story where we see clearly God is at work behind the scenes. So as we start a series this evening, what we're really going to do this evening is set the scene. We're going to see um, a few things from the story. We're going to see King Xerxes' public persona as we set the scene. We're going to look behind the scenes and see King Xerxes' hidden reality. And thirdly, we're going to see God behind the scenes as Esther and Mordecai enter. Firstly, then setting the scene. Here's King Xerxes' public persona. It's money, sex, and power. There's an unstoppable empire and an impressive ruler. Let's set the scene up then for this brilliant story. Try and get into it. Try and feel it and understand it. Have a look at verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. 
enter King Xerxes, ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's a big cheese. And you'll know the Old Testament tracks the movement of God's people, the Jews, and their relationship with God. And at this point, God's people have gone from living in their own land with their own king to these massive empires being the ruling powers over the whole land. A year and a half ago or so, we looked at the book of Daniel, where under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire took down Jerusalem and took God's people into captivity. So here's Jerusalem coming up on a map. And here's Babylon. And at the time of the book of Daniel, you've got King Cyrus who unites Medes and Persians to form this Medo-Persian empire. You'll see over there, you've got the, the crown, um, Jerusalem. They've gone all the way to Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar rules. King Cyrus then unites the Medes and Persians to form the Medo-Persian empire. Then there's Darius. And then now we have King Xerxes here in Susa. So we join our story in Susa, there it is, modern day Iran, which was the center of this huge, vast empire. The book of Esther is all about the plot to wipe out the Jews, God's people. So it's around 500 years before Jesus comes. So it's at first glance, it looks like a bit of a random story. God's people are getting further and further away from the land that they were in. There's less and less Jews in, in the story, and there's less and less hope. There's no mention of God. But what we'll see is God's promises and, and the rest of the Bible storyline rests on what happens in these pages in the story. And here's what we see about King Xerxes and his empire. It is absolutely unstoppable. Look at verse 1, 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. That's India to Ethiopia, 4,000 kilometers, the whole known world at the time. It's unstoppable, it's vast. This man's power, King Xerxes, was absolutely phenomenal. It's unstoppable and it's impressive. Look at verse 4, for... 180 days Xerxes displayed his wealth. 180 days it took him because he's that impressive. Maybe you've seen the film 300, kind of depicts this man, King Xerxes. Here it is coming up on the screen. He's all powerful and impressive in every way he wants to show it. I don't know how accurate that picture is or the depiction in 300, but what is absolutely sure is he is all about impression. It took him 180 days to display as well. Everything was for show. You look at some of the details and it's something else. Do you see there as we read it, pavements lined with jewels, goblets <laughs> that were all different, not because they didn't match, but because each one was unique and valuable. And then verse five, when the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed gardens of the king's palace for all the peoples from the late least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. You see, actually in this empire, there's something so desirable about the way it works. 
180 days of party is great, but this seven days, this is where you'd want to be. See, the Citadel, it's like the central hub of power and influence. It's where you want to be. It's like the Kremlin in Russia. That's a Citadel, where all the power, the authority, the mystique lies. It's the place you want to be. This is the way of the world Xerxes lives in. It values wealth, status, power, influence, and what else? Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Viha, Carcass, to bring him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Wow. Pretty shallow, isn't it? Maybe that tips you over the edge as you look at the way Xerxes operates. It's outrageous behaviour. It's shallow. It's selfish. It's oppressive. It's awful. The king literally treats his wife like another of his possessions to show off before his visitors. That's what he wants to do because he wants people to recognize the power that he has. But as we recognize the way of the world in the empire that Xerxes operates in, before we cast too many judgments, it gets a bit close to home. A world that says, Power is seen by the way that you can manipulate people. A a world that says acceptance is found in the number of people that come to your party. A world that says substance is found in having gold and jewels and possessions. A world that says beauty is seen by purely what someone looks like. Actually, we live in a world that operates like Xerxes is. A world that says, be impressive, be unstoppable, be powerful. We live in a world that says, be competent, be confident, be beautiful, be wealthy. This is the way of the world. And maybe you thought immediately of some extreme characters you know, a friend, a boss, a family member, and you thought, yeah, maybe that's fair. But what about you? Is that the way you think? Is that the way you're living? Are are those the tendencies in the way you make decisions about life? Because when we peel back the layers on King Xerxes, we come to a real challenge. They're setting the scene, King Xerxes' public persona, money, sex and power, an unstoppable empire and impressive ruler. But secondly, we see behind the scenes. King Xerxes's hidden reality. Peeling back the layers, there's a lack of real influence, a lack of assurance. When you peel back the layers of fame, success and power, it's not always as it seems. Here's what it says in a biography of popular modern artists, if slightly outdated, Curtis Jackson, aka 50 Cent. The release of Get Rich or Die Trying was 50 Cent's second commercial win, but probably also his last real shot at the title of hip-hop greatness. In reality, he was caught in a 
difficult battle between music and the crack trade. 50 knew this, but likely felt uneasy about revealing this fact to his fans, aware that this might serve to weaken his hardened hustler exterior. There's 50 Cent, a step away from being the most powerful man in hip-hop maybe. Yet you peel back the layers just a little bit and he's insecure of his hardened hustler exterior. Well, how does our story peel back the layers on King Xerxes? The king spent all his time, money, effort, energy, showing just how powerful and impressive he is. He's called for the queen. Now look at verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Can you imagine the scene? The shame, the awkwardness. He's powerless. Behind the public persona, the illusion of ultimate power, he's got no influence over his own wife. The king became furious and burned with anger. Of course he did. He's insecure. He became angry because it mattered so much to him. He's angry because he's insecure, the shame, the fear of being shown for what he really is, all for show. So here's the most powerful man who's been told no. What does he do? Well, verse 13, he gathers his wise men. He's needy. He needs affirmation. He needs to reassert his dominance. He needs help because he's so entrenched. He's consumed by his ways. He just needs being built up again. And what's their advice? Banish Vashti and create a law that all women must respect their husbands. He's paranoid. It all makes sense. It's all about protecting appearances. But what happens next is quite surprising. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, how does Xerxes cover up his slight mishap in power assertion? He goes bigger. A beauty contest to find the king the most beautiful women in the whole kingdom. Now, in hindsight, it looks pretty desperate, doesn't it? It looks a bit pathetic, but in the moment, he was entrenched in his ways. He was consumed by what he did. I'm sure it looked like ultimate power. And you see, we point the finger at Xerxes and say, it's disgusting. Chewing up the virgins. But quickly, it becomes a bit uncomfortable. Maybe I'm gripped at times by the way of the world. Do I feel like I have no worth? Are you desperately trying to find it by affirmation from others? Maybe you're obsessed with what people think of you. Asking yourself if people thought you looked powerful in that situation. Constantly covering your tracks to save face, to make it look like you're doing the right thing. 
maybe you're thinking, I can't believe my looks are fading. Or I can't believe this situation that we're in right now, that I'm, I'm losing my wealth, my job. Maybe you carefully manipulate conversations and situations to make yourself look good. That's the picture the story paints of Xerxes behind the scenes. That's what happens. You get consumed in looking good and strong and powerful. You project an image and it's all consuming. And it's not what we are created for. If you're obsessed by what people think of you, if you're checking the bank bank balance or, or savings account every day, if you're constantly considering whether you appear to have power, if you're in the mirror constantly dreading seeing the next wrinkle, gray hair, bit more weight, this story is pointing the finger at you and saying the way of this world could consume you. Where you're in danger of being consumed by the way of the world. Thirdly, we see God at work behind the scenes. Enter Esther and Mordecai. And it's just a little glimpse of God's unlikely solution at this point, where it all seems pretty hopeless and wretched. And we're maybe sitting in our houses thinking this could be a bit of a beat up for us. We get a tiny glimmer of hope. The first vague reference to God in verse 5. Now, there was, a, there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem. Now, we need to note the slight surprise here. In the status capital, in the bank of power, in that place, there's a Jew living. It's not where you'd expect one of God's people to reside. What's he doing? How do you get there? How can he possibly operate as one of God's people in that place? Why is he being introduced at this point when they're on the hunt for beautiful women? And then verse 7, Mordecai's cousin Esther introduced she was beautiful. And at that point, you're thinking, no, please, no. We've only met two of God's people, and one of them is a young, beautiful woman. Can you imagine? And sure enough, she went through the 12-month preparation phase, taking only what she had to. And in verse 17, she eventually gets to King Xerxes. And it says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so you can't really work out what to make of Esther and Mordecai at this point. They've been a bit sneaky, hiding Esther's family background. They seem to have played the beauty game. Mordecai's entrenched in the rhythm of the citadel life. And yet, God positions Esther and Mordecai in just the place where he's going to use them. Not because of anything they've done, not because they're brilliant, obedient Jews. Not only are they put in the right place, though, but God uses them to develop Xerxes' trust. Look at verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. And here begins the rescue. Esther and Mordecai gained some kind of bargaining chips in the way of the world. God's at work to set them up for just the right time. The king records that they're on his side. But let's notice this. It's not like Esther and Mordecai have been super faithful to God here. We can't hold up anything they've done and say, God's people today should do that. But when the world and its empire seem overpowering, God's people are a bit rubbish. Maybe you'd say similar today. Maybe you feel a bit rubbish. When it comes to operating in the way of the world, maybe you feel compromised. Oh, God can't use me after what I've done. Maybe you feel insignificant. God can't use me. I'm not influential. God doesn't really use people like me. Well, don't apply the world's standards to God. The world's all about competence, money, prestige, power, beauty. But the point of these chapters is not to say, be like Esther or be like Mordecai. No, because they're not that great. But to recognize that God's people live in an unstoppable and impressive empire, which is difficult, but ultimately flawed. And see, while it's difficult for them, God is at work. So don't fear. The power of the world is not as strong as first appearances tell you. And God will deliver his people from the way of the world, not based on their competence or on their ability to keep God's laws, but in his grace and against all the odds, God here has a plan to rescue his people. When you're in that place where it feels like God's not there, the office, the pub, the sports club, the function, the family gathering, when the way of the world is visibly impressive and it seems unstoppable, you can know that the image of power doesn't matter most, that God deeply cares about what's going on. And even when he seems absent, he is at work. And tonight we just get a tiny glimpse of how he rescues. We get a tiny glimpse of what his ultimate rescue is like in Jesus. It doesn't appear powerful. It seems unlikely. It's not based on our competence. But ultimately, it rescues us from living the world's way. It frees us from enslavery to this world. It frees us from obsession of money, sex and power. It frees us from the obsession of image and status. And it allows us to trust deeply in a God 
who is at work behind the scenes, who is at work to rescue his people. So this evening, will you trust in a God who is at work behind the scenes? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we see in this story that you're at work behind the scenes. And Lord, that you are faithful to your promises. Lord, please help us in the midst of an all-consuming and powerful-looking world to recognise that you are at work and that we can trust you. Amen.